Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, and chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, and 23 through 27. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed and represented, uh, in, to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It, enter, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeats of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without a mother or father, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself for the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, some books of the Bible can be pretty easily read. Uh, you can read through the Gospel of Mark pretty quickly and get a really good sense of what happened there. Uh, you can read through books like Philippians. We just re read through it, and though it's uh, powerfully deep, there's also a, a simplicity to Paul's exhortation to the church in Philippi. Uh, the book of James is probably one of the most practical books of the entire Bible. But then you have Hebrews. Uh, if you have been reading through Hebrews with us throughout this series, you know that there is a level of Bible knowledge that is required to know what's happening and what's being said and argued in the book of Hebrews. 
Uh, some of you know what I mean. It's a dense book. It's, it's essentially PhD level reading. And unless you've done some of the high school or undergrad or graduate reading, it can be really overwhelming to try to understand everything that is taking place there. Now that said, it's also important to know that the glory and the beauty of Scripture is that Scripture is simple enough for a child to understand, but it's deep enough for us to never fully plumb its depths. Um, it says an example of this a few weeks ago. As a family, we were watching um, a show called Crazy Delicious. And in the, it's a contest cooking show, if you've ever seen it. But in the show, the judges, they're referred to as gods. And my youngest daughter, when she heard that, her immediate response to that was to take offense. Uh, because as she said, there's one true God. There's only one true God. Of course, that is the premise of the, you know, the first two uh, commandments of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and so that's easy enough for a child to grasp. But isn't it also the case that we will spend an entire lifetime learning what it means for God to be the only God, the only true and living God in our lives, in a world that is constantly tempting us to serve other gods? All that to say, the book of Hebrews is one of the books that demands that we consider the depths of the scriptures, that we take the time to try and plumb the depths of all that occurs in the person and work of Jesus, because it shows the extent to which all scripture has one orienting goal, singly, singularly, to show us Jesus, and showing us how Jesus is greater than anything everything. And today, the author gives us an opportunity to plumb the depths of Scripture by presenting us Jesus through a man named Melchizedek. Now, I don't have it uh, fully printed for you, but if you notice, I mostly skip over chapter 6, <clears throat> actually because we're going to get to chapter 6 next week. Uh, but chapters 5 and 7 present to us this figure known as Melchizedek. And in verse 6, the author basically says that knowing about Melchizedek is a sign of maturity. And so as your pastor, I want us to be mature, so let's understand who Melchizedek is. Uh, it's a way uh, of showing us uh, the depths of, or what the author is showing us is the depths of understanding of Christ. And so we must take interest in considering this very interesting very elusive figure named Melchizedek because Jesus is a greater Melchizedek. So what's that, what does that mean for us? Well, let's consider who Melchizedek is, why he matters, and how he ultimately shows us Jesus. Uh, so who exactly was this Melchizedek guy? Uh, again, he's an, an extremely obscure figure, very intriguing guy. Um, <clears throat> there's very little that's known about him. He's only really referenced twice uh, in the, in throughout the scripture, I guess you kind of three times, but ultimately twice. Um, most of us, I know, many have maybe never heard of him. Uh, I realize that that's often the case. But the only times that you hear about him are in chapters 5 and 7, which is what we have here. You have Psalm 110, which is where we hear of him. And interestingly is that chapters 5 and 7 of our passage are actually referencing back to Psalm 110. And then we find out who he actually was all the way back in Genesis 14. So Genesis, is, Genesis 14 gives us all the details that we have on him. 
So let's understand what's happening in Genesis 14. <clears throat> in essence, in Genesis 14, chapter 14, tells us of these kings from the east who were subjecting the people of Canaan uh, to pay tribute to them. And when the people did not do that, these kings showed up and they laid siege to the cities of Canaan. Now, at this point, Abraham ends up in the story. And at the time, Abraham is still called Abram. It's early, pretty early in Abraham's story. <clears throat> what happens is that Abram's nephew, Lot, uh, lived in one of the cities that had been captured. And so now as a result, Lot and his family are taken into captivity. In response to this, Abraham gathered all of his men, men who he had trained for war, 318 of them, and he attacked the kings, defeated those kings, and rescued his nephew and their family. It's legit like out of a movie or something. Now when Abraham returns, he crosses paths with this man named Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is described as the king of Salem. Now whoever he is, he is in some way connected to the city that would eventually become Jerusalem. But let me read for you the interaction that takes place. Genesis 14, verses 18 and 20 is what I'm going to read here. It says this, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So here you have Melchizedek, who's a king. He's also a priest. Abraham had just now intersected with him after this great battle. They worship and rejoice together before the Most High God. And then Abram, out of gratitude for all that God has done, tithes, gives 10% uh, to uh, Melchizedek, the priest. Now, this is not the point. I do want to just take a little bit of a detour very quickly. Um, but I do want to point out God, or Abraham's response to God's goodness. It's an interesting response. I mean, what does he do? When God has proven himself to be faithful to uh, Abraham, Abraham's immediate response is to give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because when he realized all that God had done for him, he wanted to have some kind of tangible act of worship that he could come before the Lord and say, thank you. And that's often what happens when we realize the goodness of God. We inevitably come open-handedly saying, God, you have been so good to me. All that I have, all that I have is yours. All that I am is yours. It's, an attempt, it's not an attempt at earning any kind of favor with God, but this desire to give to the Lord because of the favor that we have already experienced. And what is it exactly that Abraham does? Well, here we see an example of how one gives themselves or gives what they have to the Lord, and that's through tithing. Tithing, which is the giving of 10% of our income, shows that we are thankful and that we trust the Lord. And I know tithing and giving can often be a, a tricky subject for people to try to engage with, but it's important for us as followers of Jesus, as those who are a people called by the name of the Lord, to, to recognize that giving is an act of worship. 
I know that many say things like or, or think, I just, I can't afford to do that. And I recognize that at times in our lives, there's certainly <clears throat> seasons where it's, it's difficult to do it. But tithing is a way for us to say, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do without that 10%, but I trust that the Lord will meet my needs. He has proven himself to be good and faithful to me already, and I will trust that he will continue to be uh, into the future as well. And lest one uh, assume, I just, unless one, unless one would assume right now that this is some way of like trying to raise money for uh, Redeemer East Harlem, I just want you to know that's not it at all. You know, though being part of a church means committing to supporting the work of that church, this isn't about raising money for the church. This is honestly about our souls. This is a, a practice that is good for our souls. And so if you don't want to give to our church, give somewhere but give in response to God's goodness and his favor. So that like, and like Abraham, bringing our tithes before the Lord as an act of worship. Okay, that was a little bit of a side note. Let's get back to it. Now, you have this Melchizedek, king of Salem, but also described as a priest of the most high God. Now, what is that exactly? This is all we know about him. We know he was a king. We know he's a priest. And then what happens is that he disappears and we never hear from him again. You know, over a thousand years later, the psalmist in Psalm 110 mentions him briefly, mentions Melchizedek briefly. And then about a thousand years after that, the author of Hebrews mentions him again, mentions him again in our passage. And that's it. And then in the book of Hebrews, the, the author basically says, mature Christians know about this guy. He has no genealogy. There are no stories of his adventures or his sins or his successes. There's nothing. All we know is that he was a king and a priest of the Most High God and that he was not Jewish. He was a Gentile from the land of Canaan. Now, this is curious. It's very, all very curious, all very interesting. It all matters a lot. But there's a couple curious things. That the, one, it's important just to know that the nation of Israel obviously did not exist yet. It's also important to note that there uh, was no law yet established. This would be many years before Moses uh, and God's law would come into effect. <clears throat> and it's also a reminder that Abraham was not the only one who served the one true and living God during this time. And that matters because we often, when we think about the land of Canaan, we often think about it as like this pagan land. We often think about it in terms of what happened post uh when Israel left Egypt and entered into the, Canaan, into the land of Canaan, where, if you know the stories, you often saw the people of Canaan worshiping a god named Baal. And later in Israel's story, again, this is where you, we see a lot of this as the Israelites interact with the Canaanites. Yet here we have a king of Canaan, also a servant of the Most High God. And what's interesting about that is archaeologists have actually shown how this took place. Uh, in the 1920s, archaeologists uh, excavated um, an ancient city of Urgot. And in that excavation, they discovered thousands of tablets that chronicled the religious beliefs of the people of Canaan over many, many, many years. And they found that before 1200 BC, the people largely worshipped this one transcendent creator, the Most High God. They likely did not know him by the name Yahweh, but they did worship him. 
However, over time, they eventually degenerated uh, from serving the one true and living God, and they eventually fell into idolatry, serving now uh, many gods, Baal being the chief god among them. Then, uh, throughout much of, and it's at that point that much of the Old Testament narrative intersects now with the Canaanites. But what's interesting is all this confirms what the Bible said was true about this time period. Melchizedek would have been in the time period where the people were worshiping this one true and living God. It's important just to know. So this is what we know about Melchizedek. That's it. That's all we know. But why does he matter? Why is he made of such a big deal of in our passage? Well, he matters so much to the author of Hebrews for several reasons. Because the author notes multiple times in chapters 5 and 7 that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which again is a reference back to Psalm 110. In other words, Jesus is a greater Melchizedek. And again, what was Melchizedek? Well, he was a king and a priest. Now, the reason why that matters is that's a very, very unique role for one to have. This is an incredibly unique role uh, when, you, when considering the Old Testament structures. You know, particularly when we think about priests and kings, we think about the offices that were set up during the time of Moses where you had prophets, priests, and kings. And for the most part, those things did not overlap. They do at times, but often did not overlap because, particularly with kings and priests, you don't want that to be the same person, usually. I mean, think about it. The king is the giver and the overseer of the law. He is the one who brings punishment to those who disobey or transgress the law. He is the one whose duty it is to uphold justice. If you mess up, you don't want to go before the king. His office is one of justice. The priest, though, he is the one that you want to go to when you mess up. He's the counselor. He is the one who goes before God as a, a mediator, as, as an advocate for us in our failure. His office is one of comfort and empathy and tears. And so to have those roles fulfilled by one person almost feels contradictory. But here's the thing. We do need both kings and priests. We need them desperately. You know, those, those terms may sound antiquated to many, but we still desire to have kings and priests in our lives. You know, we need kings who demand justice and order and that ensure the safety and the flourishing of everyone under their rule. We also want priests. We need those who compassionately comfort us, those who are willing to help carry our burdens, those willing to show grace and ensure us that things are going to be okay. And I realize that for many today, those ideas might sound outdated, but I beg to differ. We might not call them kings and priests, but we have our modern day equivalents to kings and priests. And we seek after them to fulfill those roles in our lives. You know, consider uh, with kings. We have strong leaders who uphold what we deem to be good and right and true and just. You know, we don't call them kings, but we do call them mayors and governors and presidents. You know, even right now, there is much talk about law and order leadership. I mean, what is that? 
Well, that is appealing to this inner desire that we have for a king. Those who will ensure that there is law and order. We do desire that as people. Of course, we have to then consider, though, what then happens when a king who desires law and order, but then lacks empathy and compassion? What happens then? What happens when you get a king who cares more about people proving their loyalty to him than he does about actually being compassionate and empathetic and even just? What happens when a king perverts power into self-aggrandizing pursuits? You know, I think a great example of this is King David. He was uh, a man who started as a great king. He was a man after God's own heart, Scripture tells us. But in the end, power corrupted. And he used his power in a detestable way by raping one of his subjects. He lacked empathy and compassion and a commitment to justice because he was failable and power corrupted. And eventually, we know that this is the case with all of our kings, with all of our leaders. They will fail us at some point. But we also need priests don't we? You know, we desire to have priests, and I've thought much about this concept uh, lately. Boy, oh boy, do we ever pursue priests in our lives. You know, it's fair to say that, you know, in some ways, maybe the pastors fill this role, Um, but there are secular versions of priests today in our culture. I mean, maybe we don't think about it this way, but what are counselors and therapists and social workers? I mean, they are people to whom we go to experience empathy and compassion and guidance. They are people that we hope in some way will help us lift the burdens that we feel as a result of our failures or as a result of the failures of others. I mean, why is there such a high demand for these kinds of professions? Why, even, when we think about the most valuable relationships that we have in our lives, we often think about those who know us best and with whom we can share our deepest concerns. It's because we all need priests. We all want priests. Of course, though, what happens when a priest loses sense of what is right and wrong? What happens when a priest uh, is, uh, is so committed to compassion that he actually undermines the ability to demand justice. Uh, A great example of this from Scripture uh, would be another priest that's actually mentioned in our passage there in chapter 5, Aaron. So after Moses led his people out of slavery in Egypt, the people began to grumble and faced quite a few hardships as they moved on to the Promised Land. And as a result, they come to Aaron, the priest. And they ask Aaron to make them a golden calf as a means of finding relief and guidance. They wanted to create this other god. Now Aaron, the empathetic and compassionate one, capitulated and did so. I mean, in his compassion, he failed to uphold what was right and true, which was to point people to the one true and living God. And like Aaron... No pastor, no counselor, no therapist, and no really good friend will ever fully be able to carry your burdens well. And at one, at some point, they are going to fail you along the way. It will happen. 
Eventually, we know that all priests fail us. But what might happen if someone who fully embodies what it means to be a king and a priest does so perfectly, fulfills those roles without failure, what might that king and priest look like? Verses uh, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, give us a picture of what it might mean to have a perfect king and priest. It says this, let me reread it for us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He became a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, what exactly does it mean for Jesus to be a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek? Well, again, remember, what was, who was Melchizedek? He was a king priest. Jesus then is the fulfillment of that extraordinarily unique role. I mean, as you might know, Jesus, he comes from uh, the tribe of Judah. That was the kingly tribe. Kings came from Judah. And as a result, there are certain expectations that one has for a king. In fact, Psalm 110, the psalm that we've been referencing back to, which is the other place where we see uh, Melchizedek mentioned, the whole psalm is articulating the role of a king. In particular, in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 110, it speaks of a king that will crush other kings with his wrath that he will come to judge the nations. This is the king that we expect. We see this again in the book of Revelation, particularly in chapter 9, where Jesus returns as a king, and he comes with justice to judge the nations. And Psalm 110 reminds us of that power, that might, the unmatched power of King Jesus. In that way, Jesus is the king. But what's interesting is right in the middle of the passage of Psalm 110, it's there that we see the psalmist also say that this king is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Even in the middle of describing this powerful king that must crush injustice, a judge that ensures that, that the perpetuators of injustice are defeated, like any good king should be. He also describes the psalmist, this compassionate priest who then carries the burdens of those in needs. How does he do that? Let me reread for you verses 26, uh, chapter 6, verse 26 and 28 of our passage. So such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. See, the king who demands justice and punishment against the rebellious. 
for those who have rebelled against his rule and his reign. He uses his unmatched power to make himself the sacrifice. See, the priest who does not have the power, priests did not have the power to remove the consequences of people's failure. All the priest could do was essentially advocate for the people. But here's what's interesting, is that when the priest is also your king, now you have one who is advocating for you, but advocating with authority and power. See, Jesus uses his power in a very particular way. Jesus uses his power as king to lay down his life as the only sufficient sacrifice to deal with the punishment necessitated by injustice and rebellion. Jesus ensures that the perfect sacrifice is sufficient and complete for those who trust in him so that now, as high priest and advocate, he is not advocating for us as though uh, we'll get some kind of leniency from the Father, but rather he is advocating. Jesus advocates for justice. Why? Because for those who trust in him, the punishment and the consequences of sin, they've been fully paid by our high priest. It would be unjust to be punished for sins that have already been paid for. Jesus, our king, demands justice. Jesus, our priest, advocates for us by receiving the judgment of injustice on the cross for us. And Jesus, our king priest, now advocates before the Father that those who trust in him be treated as righteous, for justice has already been done. This is the power of being in the order of Melchizedek, being both king and priest. It's where we find our hope, that Jesus is both, because we need Jesus to be both. This is what he's done for us. And I just want to end with this simple question, one that I've been reflecting on for myself and I present to you now. But I wonder, do you need to be reminded that Jesus is your king or your priest? Because I find that we tend to forget one of the two pretty regularly. What I mean by that is, do you need to be reminded that Jesus is king who demands justice and obedience? You know, do you too easily think about Jesus as compassionate and therefore do not take submission to him seriously? Maybe you need to be reminded that Jesus is king, powerful, mighty, ruler over our lives. But maybe for others, you don't need to be reminded of the power and might and majesty and rule of Jesus, but you need to be reminded that Jesus is a priest who empathizes with our weakness. You know, do you too easily feel condemned and unworthy and maybe even fearful? Remember, Jesus is sufficient for our forgiveness, redemption, and freedom. And so be confident that for Jesus' sakes, the Father looks on us as he would look on Christ. Be reminded of your great high priest. Which do you need to be reminded of today? And are there ways that as a result of forgetting that Jesus is your king or priest, you now need to come before God with a posture of repentance and confession, acknowledging the ways that you haven't trusted him as your king or your priest? I don't know what those might be for you. I can certainly think of what those are for me. 
But let's allow this idea of Jesus being this perfect king priest for us, lead us to desire to be closer to him, closer to our king, closer to our priest. I trust that he meets us there by his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of what we, uh, what we see in this passage, these passages, that Jesus is our king, he is our priest. Thank you for his power. Thank you also for his compassion. May we be reminded of these things regularly. And may it cause us, Lord, to reflect deeply on what it is in our lives that you might desire for us to change, ways that we ought to be thinking differently, living differently, <clears throat> that in the end uh, we might honor the fact that we do have a great king priest that has accomplished much for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.